We'll be wrapping up our time in John chapter 7 this morning, so if you will, please grab your Bible and turn with me there, or open your phone and turn in your app to John chapter 7. In a sermon entitled, The Problem of the Age, Charles Spurgeon once told this great little story about how his grandfather, when he was alive, he had to fill in for Charles one day because Charles had been delayed by his train ride. When you talk about a delay, delayed on a train, that's probably pretty slow. So his grandfather stands up to preach in Charles Spurgeon's stead, and as you can imagine, I'm sure the crowd was at least a little disappointed. They came to hear the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and we get his grandpa. Great. Well, his grandpa was pretty far along in his sermon when Charles comes walking through the doors. His grandfather stops, of course, and he says, Now you have all come to hear my grandson, and therefore I will stop that you may hear him. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. You have to love the humility of the grandfather in understanding and recognizing the giftedness that his grandson had over even himself. But the best part of that story is, of course, the truth in the grandfather's statement. There might be some incredibly gifted teachers and preachers out there. Some preach and teach better than others. There are many who preach and teach better than myself. But no one can preach a better gospel. There is but one marvelous, glorious, magnificent gospel that all men must hear and respond to. If the response to this gospel, this glorious gospel, that will be the focus of our time together in the gospel of John this morning, as we finish chapter 7 today, we're going to hear the greatest gospel preacher to ever live proclaim the gospel, talking, of course, of Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn five critical lessons about this gospel. Jesus will teach us that the, the gospel is impartial, that it assumes a need, that it requires action, that it impacts society. And most unpleasantly to many of us, the gospel divides. And without further ado, let's read our text, John chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 37. And we're just going to begin by reading verses 37 to 39 for now. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, and we have sung just incredibly soul-stirring songs this morning, I just pray that, Lord, that our souls would continue to be stirred in your word as we learn about the gospel, as we get to hear Jesus, the greatest gospel preacher, no doubt, preach the gospel to us. I pray that we would be 
stirred up this morning for him. I pray that our souls would be quenched in him, that we'd be satisfied in him. I pray that I, as I preach, would make much of Jesus in this sermon, that we would all leave here glorifying him, for he is worthy. In his name we pray, amen. The gospel is impartial. Before we get to Jesus' statement, I want to see what John says about the context. John tells us in the beginning of verse 37 that it was the last day of the feast, the great day, when Jesus stands up to proclaim the gospel. And as you recall, Jesus went up to the temple to begin preaching at the midway point of the Feast of Booths. Last week, we saw that Jesus was foretelling of his going back to the Father and that the Jews cannot go where he is coming. Jesus has been teaching now at this point for a few days openly in the temple, and now the feast is drawing to a close. You have to imagine, given the fact that chapter 7 began by telling us that many Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, you have to imagine that these have been some tense few days of teaching. There has probably been some uh, really, uh, a really thick air of tension in the air as Jesus is standing in the temple openly and publicly preaching the gospel, teaching the people the things that the Pharisees hate to hear. This is probably a very tense time. But he continues teaching without anyone able to stop him. Don't you love that? D.A. Carson tells us in his commentary that there's a bit of history at this point that's very helpful for us to know so that we can understand a little bit more about why Jesus chose the words that he did. Why is he talking about living water? Why is he talking about if anyone thirsts, come to him and drink? Well, there's some history here that I thought would be helpful to bring before you this morning. Uh, Carson, and I'm largely quoting from him, I don't want you to think that I'm a, a brilliant historian I'm trying to remember what I did yesterday. So Carson writes in his commentary that each day of the feast, there would be a procession that was led by the high priest down to uh, the waters, uh, the pool of Siloam. The high priest would have a, a golden pitcher, and they would go down to that pool. They would draw out some water from that pool. And as he filled the pitcher, the temple choir that was with him, they would repeat Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 that we read in our call to worship. It says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they would head back to the temple. The high priest is carrying this golden pitcher of water. And as they approach the water gate, they would stop. And then there would be three loud blasts of the, tr the trumpet. And then the priests would go into the temple, the people hanging back. And they would take the golden pitcher and walk around the altar. And as the priests walk around the altar, the, the temple choir would then sing the Hallel, which is Psalms chapter 113 through 118. Yes, the Psalms are the songbook, the, the songbook of Israel. So they're singing the Psalms. And it's pretty amazing that they're singing these Psalms because Psalm 114 makes specific reference to what their ritual signified, this drawing of the water. It signified... The time, if you remember, when God provided water for Israel in the wilderness out of the rock, it was a specific reference to Christ. Psalm 118 also makes a specific reference to Christ. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become 
the cornerstone. Now imagine you're there and you've seen this taking place every single day of the feast. Seven-day feast. This has been happening every single day. And then the temple choir reaches Psalm 118. All of the men would raise what they had been holding. In one hand, they had uh, some twigs from a particular kind of tree. And in the other hand, they had a citrus fruit. And this was to symbolize the harvest that they had just brought in. Because if you remember, the Feast of Bruce is taking place around harvest time. And then they would all shout, give thanks to Yahweh three times. And at that moment, the high priest would take the water and he would pour it into a bowl and it would be poured out. This was an incredibly symbolic moment for the Jews. To us, it might sound kind of bizarre because we didn't grow up in that context, but this was a very important moment. And it's within this context that Jesus stands up and proclaims, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As water is on everyone's mind. As they have heard Isaiah 12.3 that spoke of drawing water from the well of salvation. And Psalm 118 that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's still ringing in their ears. And Jesus proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. What incredible timing our Lord has. Do you think it's by any accident that he's saying this at this moment, at this place? No, it's not. He knows exactly what he's doing. It is both the timing of this statement and the content of his statement that elicits a very mixed response that we're going to see shortly. So we see this is a very significant moment. Jesus chooses his words Likely, with all of this in mind, he uses the entire feast as an object lesson and essentially shows how he is the fulfillment of what this feast points to. He's right in front of you. He doesn't sit in the corner and teach a small group of his disciples. He doesn't say, hey, okay, now you see what they're doing right now. This is about me. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about in chapter 12, verse 3, where he said, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. I am the well of salvation. That's what he's talking about, disciples. No, the text says that he stood up and proclaimed. It means that he shouted. He cried out with a loud voice. Now, other than children, the only time a person shouts is when they desire to be heard by everyone. Children shout because they're children. But typically, we shout when we want everyone to hear us. And that's exactly the point. He wants everyone to hear him. That's bringing us to our first lesson that we learn about the gospel, is that the gospel is impartial. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts. The call of the gospel is not reserved for high society, it's not reserved for the religious elite. It's not whispered among the most intellectual. The gospel call is for everyone to hear. And isn't it amazing that what we looked at last week, Jesus just got done telling the Jews what? Where I am, you cannot come. He's essentially telling them, you're not going with me. 
And then the next thing that we hear out of Jesus' mouth is what? If anyone except for these people is thirsty. If anyone except for those people that are trying to kill me is thirsty. No. He says, if anyone thirsts, that means them too. I mean, Jesus completely unlike us. Don't we fence off the gospel for people we don't really like? Isn't it true that sometimes there are people that we're more mad about than actually wanting their repentance? Isn't it true that we're nothing like Jesus? Do you see the heart of Christ? Do you see his willingness to save? Everyone wants to kill him. They've just accused him of having a demon. And he says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. My friends, no one goes to hell who will be able to say that they wanted to be saved, saved, but Jesus wouldn't save them. It will be true of them, however, that Jesus offered them salvation, but they did not want to be saved. The call of the gospel does not show partiality as many of us do today. The free offer of salvation is for the rich and the poor. It's for the college graduate, for doctors, for lawyers, for politicians, for religious zealots, for homosexuals, for drug addicts, for prisoners, for thieves, for adulterers, and yes, even you and I. The call of the gospel is for everyone. You see, we must not be so Calvinistic that we fence off the gospel to only the elect. If you are the elect of God, come to God. No. Jesus, who certainly believed in predestination more than you and I ever did, says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. To quote Spurgeon again, he said, until God gives me the roll call of the elect, I shall continue preaching the whosoever will gospel. Whoever will come, whoever is thirsty, no one is to be kept from hearing the gospel, not even those who seem to hate Jesus the most. The people who want to kill him, the people who said he has a demon. He's saying this in their ears. What patience and mercy is in our Savior's heart. These Jews were ready to kill him. He's already said that they want to kill him. He has acknowledged it. And still he says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Friends, are you and I like that when we're mad at somebody, when we know that somebody doesn't like us? Oh, that we would be more like Christ. That I would be. Christ is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to come to him. He puts no stumbling blocks in their way. He makes the path to salvation clear, and he's even purchased it with his own blood. Then he turns around and says, if you want to be saved, come to me. If you are thirsty, come and drink. He's done everything, and so the gospel goes out to everyone. But there is a particular type of person who will respond positively to the gospel. This is the second lesson that we learn is that the gospel assumes a need. He says, if anyone thirsts. While the call of the gospel is for anyone and everyone, 
It is only received by those who come to a realization of their need. This part of Jesus' proclamation probably calls to mind what he said in chapter 6. Do you remember? In verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus proclaims himself to be that which satisfies our soul's most basic needs. He chooses bread and water, not champagne and caviar. He chooses these basic, readily available items that would immediately put into mind exactly what he is talking about. Everyone experiences hunger. Everyone experiences thirst. But do you notice the order of Jesus' gospel presentation? He begins by identifying his audience, anyone, and then immediately goes into addressing his audience's need. If anyone thirsts. Now this is significant for us to catch today because there are so many so-called Christians and Christian groups that are not interested in speaking of the desperate need of the human soul. But instead they want to package Jesus in such a way that implies, you know, you're doing pretty good already, but Jesus can kind of take you to the next level. Or why not give Jesus a try? I heard a very famous pastor one time say, give it. Give him a 60-day trial. Give him a 60-day trial. Hey, I just want you to know that God loves you. So much time and effort is spent on making the gospel palatable and appealing to sinners that are in rebellion against God when Jesus shows us clearly over and over again that what you need to begin with is addressing the great need of the human soul. Think of it. Have you ever been offered food after you had just finished eating? What do you normally say? Oh, no thanks, I just ate. Or what about you go to somebody's house and you have a drink in your hand and say, hey, are you thirsty? Do you want some? No thanks, I already have my own. That's what it is to be spiritually self-sufficient. You hear the call of the gospel and you say, no thanks, I'm not thirsty. I'm not hungry for the bread of life. I heard Donald Trump say one time, I don't need to repent. I try to live the kind of life where I don't need to repent. There are many who share a very, sim very similar sentiment. They don't come to Christ thirsty and hungry and completely bankrupt. They assume to stroll up casually to Christ and say, Good sir, I have kept the law. I have been a law-abiding citizen. I have done everything that I was supposed to do. I have provided well for my family. And I even went to church most of the time. I'll have heaven now, please. Is this not exactly how the Pharisees are? Is this not exactly the mentality of the Pharisee? They don't sense their need for Christ. In fact, they believed themselves to be so self-sufficient that not only do they not need Jesus, they don't even want him around. They don't need him. What do I have to do with this man for Galilee? The gospel call assumes one vital prerequisite, need. It is the sick who need a healer. It is the hungry who need food. 
It is the thirsty who need water. It is the sinner who needs forgiveness. Popular Christianity is not found of this kind of gospel call. They would rather hear Jesus call them to greater works, to step into their purpose, and to have their best life now. Is it any wonder then that we see things like that he gets us ad campaign that seeks to draw people to Jesus by making Jesus more relatable? Well, he's just like you. So you come and get to know him. He's just like you are. Is it any wonder the modern preachers focus so much on your purpose, your calling, and the so-called blessed life? What is very sad about these things is that Jesus' gospel proclamation, it is so tender and compassionate and caring and gracious and merciful and loving. But in the name of so-called love, they change the, the gospel. Think of it. Could it be more simple than what Jesus said? If you're thirsty, come. You, you don't get more simple and easy than that. Instead, it's you perceive to yourself to be a pretty good person. Jesus will make you even better. Jesus came for the sin-sick sinner, not for the righteous. He came for those who are destitute. He came to free the prisoner, not for those who have no need of him. If you perceive yourself to be a pretty good person, then you will not come to the well of living water. So brothers and sisters, let us not think that having once come to drink of Christ that we need not drink anymore. You know, you could go your whole life, you could live to be, at, come to a point when you're 55 years old and every day of your life you have had a whole gallon of water. But if at the age of 55 you decided, I'm not going to drink any more water. Do you know how long popular science said you would last? About three more days with no water. But what about those 55 years of a gallon of water a day? Doesn't that count for something? No. It might have taken you that 55 years, but it takes you no further. And so it is with our own self-sufficiency. It might take you so far as far as human humans can consider or think but it does nothing for the satisfying your soul it does nothing of eternal value we cannot think that since we've had one drink from the well of living water one time in our life that's going to be enough to sustain you you know what that is today i prayed the prayer when i was seven years old once saved always saved and the rest of your life you have lived without drinking from the well of Christ. You've had no concern for holiness. You've had no desire for his word. You have not cared about the things of God. But the one time you did the prayer, do you know what that's saying? I drank a cup of water one time. Why am I thirsty now ten years later? You have not come to the well and stayed at the well. You have not continued to drink of Christ. But further than that, evidence that you have had a drink from the well of living water is that you want 
more. It's not just that you would like to. It's not just that you want to try to live a better life. It's that you want more of him. Nothing in this world satisfies you anymore, and you have come to know that. And you say, give me more of Christ. I want more of him. I am done with my old ways. Do you know why Jesus didn't have to say, if anyone is thirsty, repent of your sins and come to me? It's because as soon as you come to me, you come to him, that is repentance. Coming to Christ truly is repenting of your sins because it is saying, I am done with the old way. I want him. The gospel call assumes a need and it offers a solution for that need. Thus, the gospel call also requires action. This is the third important lesson. The gospel requires action. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him go to church on Sundays. If anyone thirsts, let him join a Bible study. If anyone thirsts, let him begin to tithe. If anyone thirsts, no, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus bids the thirsty to come to him and drink. He doesn't make the sinner aware of their need only to leave them there. He doesn't just say you're thirsty and you need to know that you're thirsty. He says, you're thirsty, so come to me and drink and I will satisfy your soul like nothing else can. He presses upon you your need for him and then he says, come to me. He makes no mention of bringing your own bucket or having to purchase water. He simply says, come, come to me. You know, the gospel really is that simple and it really is that profound it's simple because he simply offers water to the thirsty i mean anybody can understand that anyone can understand that at the same time many have pointed out how profound this invitation is because he uses three action words that describe what it means to exercise saving faith there is a kind of faith that is does not save we saw that in John chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, we have talked about it a lot, haven't we? That there were many people who believed in his name, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? That they had a false faith. That is a reality. But Jesus teaches us here in this very simple gospel call, the three elements of saving faith. Thirst, come, drink. There is truth that you must become aware of. That is your thirst. You must become aware of your need for Christ. But you also must become convinced of some truth such that it leads you to believe it. That is to come. See, it's not enough just to know you're thirsty. You must also come. But that's not enough. Most importantly, you must trust in this truth that you have been made aware of and convinced of. You must come and drink. This is what true belief looks like, and we know that that's what Christ is speaking of here because then he rephrases it in verse 38. Did you see it? 
says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me. So he's teaching us what it means to believe. It means to know that you're thirsty. To believe that I can come to him and to trust in him enough that I drink of him. Today we're going to get to spend some time in fellowship as we share a meal after the service. I'm sure many of you are going to be hungry because you know I don't preach short sermons. But what good would it do to show up hungry and hear about this wonderful meal that we have prepared and to sit there in your hunger without ever filling your plate and eating? And you just sit there hungry. And you say, have you tried this? This is delicious. Oh, I believe you. I'm sure it is. It looks delicious. Why aren't you eating? And in the same way, there are many Christians who have come to believe that they're a sinner. And they have come to believe that Christ in some way could probably do something to help me out with that. But they have refused to trust in him yet. Do you know how very common that is in the Bible Belt where everyone goes to vacation Bible school and everyone goes to youth camp? A lot of people have some measure of knowledge of God, some measure of knowledge that we are sinners, some measure of knowledge that we need Jesus. And so many yet have failed to do the one thing while calling themselves Christians, have failed to do the one thing that makes them a Christian, and that is trust in Jesus. To come to him and drink deeply from the well of salvation. You know what that looks like? It's the life that has no interest in anything of, that has to do with God. It is a life lived of morality. Well, I'm a Christian because I vote Republican. I pay my taxes. I'm a law-abiding citizen. But you ask, how often do you think of God? How much dust is on your Bible? How long has it been since you truly have felt near to the Lord? Oh, well, you know, things get busy and things this, that, and the other. I don't, I don't really believe in, in these kinds of... That is a person who has come to know that they're thirsty, has come to hear the call that they can come, but they have yet to drink. How sad will it be to know your thirst, to hear the invitation to come and die of thirst. But there are many today who will die of thirst, who will not partake of Christ. There are many today who claim to be Christian, but have never even come to know their thirst. But don't call me a sinner. I don't like to be called a sinner. I have flaws, I have hang-ups, I have mishaps. But I'm not a sinner. Well, my friend, then you don't have forgiveness. Because only sinners are forgiven. Only those who deserve the wrath of God can partake in the sacrifice of Christ. You know why? Because Christ bore our wrath. And if that is not you, then you are of the group that Jesus said, where I am, you cannot come. You can live your life thinking, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. But on the last day, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
No, the Christian life is, as the psalmist said, it is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Isaiah 55, 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Revelation 22, 17, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Why will you die? Take it. It's free. It's yours. You're thirsty, don't you know? Drink deeply. So have you come to Christ to drink? Have you heard this call of the gospel and recognized your need of your soul and come to drink of Christ? Maybe you've gone as far as knowing that you need him and even knowing you should be in church. I I know these things. But you've never actually come to drink of him My friend, if you stay in that position, you will be as one who dies of thirst with their hand on the water bucket. Why would you do that? Trust in him. Drink of him. But if you have no sense of your need for this water, if you would rather trust in your own outward works of religion, if you think yourself to be good enough to merit heaven, if you want a church, if you want to trust in your going to church all your life and tithing everything that you make, if you want to trust in your so-called honest, hard-working personality, then I believe that the message that Christ has for you is where I am, you cannot come. You cannot come. Hell is reserved for the full. Hell is reserved for those who don't need water. Hell is reserved for the self-sufficient. Heaven is reserved for the hungry, the thirsty, and the poor in spirit. What is amazing is that Christ will so satisfy your soul that you will be overflowing. This is the fourth lesson of the gospel. The gospel impacts society. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verses 38 to 39, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus explains that when anyone drinks of this water, out of that person will now flow rivers of living water. Imagine a river flowing where there was once a desert. That is the Christian life. Remember, he's saying this to people who are thirsty. They they don't have water. They're they're thirsty. And now you believe in him and your dry, barren land of a heart is now going to be flowing with the river of living water. What does this mean? Does this mean that you can impart the Spirit to people? That's what some people think. First, we have to consider what he means by as the scripture has said, because there are not any Old Testament passages that say that exactly. There are many passages that speak of water and even of life-giving water. As we read in our call to worship and then referenced in the historical background of the water ritual of the Feast of Booze, Isaiah 12.3 tells us, In joy will you draw from the well of salvation. 
then of course we can forget the temple vision in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel has a vision of the temple in all of its perfection. And do you know what's flowing out from all four sides of the temple and eventually covering the whole earth? Water. The water goes out and brings life everywhere that it goes as it gets progressively deeper and deeper. Then we see the ultimate fulfillment of that later in Revelation 22. And we find out that that temple was a vision of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And from that throne flows the waters, the, living, the river of living water. So the ultimate fulfillment of that is God. God sending His Spirit out into the world and it brings life everywhere it goes. But here, Jesus is talking about the recipient of the water that He provides. That if you come to drink of Christ, the scriptures that point to life-giving water in the Old Testament are going to be true in you. In a much smaller sense, no doubt. To be sure, he does not mean to have us believe that those who have been given the Spirit, that you can go give the Spirit to other people. That's not what he's saying. He is speaking of how he uses his people whom he has saved to continue to pour out life-giving water throughout the whole world. Now, how does this happen? How does he get to get this offer of living water out to the world? He no longer stands up in the temple and proclaims the free offer as the incarnate Son is not on this earth. So how does he do it? He proclaims this offer through his people opening their mouths to share the gospel. Jesus says in this passage, if you're thirsty, come. And then you say to the world around you, Jesus said that if you're thirsty, come to him. And guess what happens? The river that God has placed in you is now in them, and now more of the water is covering the earth. Christians all across the globe and throughout history do that. And that river of life continues to flow to more and more parts of the world. It is not you who are offering to satisfy the deepest longing of the human soul. It is you saying that you know who can satisfy the deepest longing of the human soul. It is you saying that if anyone is thirsty, they will, if they will come to drink and drink of the well of living water, they will be satisfied then that person comes to life and the Spirit of God is given to them and they turn around and they do the same thing. And that is how waters, the, the rivers of living water continues to flow from you. It's through God using you to share the gospel to other people who come to saving faith. It's very simple. This, my friends, is how the gospel impacts society. How is it that the world can be changed or that America or Texas or Lubbock County can be changed for the good? It's much bigger than merely electing better politicians who more closely align to your conservative values. The real way to see a society change is to evangelize. It's people becoming Christian. That's how the society changes so the next time that you feel compelled to speak so poorly of the condition of our world, maybe you ought to ask yourself whether or not 
you're doing the one thing that can truly bring lasting change to a society, and that is sharing the gospel that you might see the river of living water bring life everywhere it goes. Do you know why the world is in the condition that it's in? It's a dry and barren land where no water is. It's sinful. Now I'll confess, this is an area where we as a church have not been very strong. And that falls on me. But brothers and sisters, do we not long to see people saved? Do we not long to see living water overtake our family, our friends, our city, state, and nation? I believe that you do. And this text tells us that if we have come to the source of living water, then living water will be flowing out from us. So let us get out of the way and let it flow. But let us also be prepared to receive the very wide variety of reactions and responses to the gospel as we see in the rest of this text. This is the fifth and final lesson is that the gospel divides. I want to focus specifically on verse 43. So there was a division among the people. But let's read the whole rest of that passage. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that the prophet arises from Galilee. Do you see the wide variety of reactions to Jesus? To his gospel proclamation? To his free, compassionate, loving, caring gospel call? We're going to focus there, verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. And what is it that caused the division? It's in verse 40. When they heard these words. When they heard these words. I don't know about you, but I couldn't find anything to be offended about in that gospel call. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's, that's amazing. That, that warms my heart. That brings me so much joy. But there's some people that's not the case. They hate it. They don't want to be told they're thirsty. The same gospel that brings us so much comfort and joy is the same gospel that causes so much division. Some people were saying, yeah, this really is the prophet. This really is the Christ. Other people are still stuck on what they believe, where they thought the Christ is supposed to come from. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? I mean, we're not even dealing with what Jesus said. Just, is he supposed to come from Galilee? I don't think so. So whatever he says, we just chalk it up. It doesn't really matter. Some of them want to arrest Jesus, verse 44. The temple, the temple officers failed to arrest him. Some people want to arrest him. 
And the officers are sent to arrest them, and they don't. And why not? Because they can't believe what they've been hearing. They're blown away. No one ever spoke like this man. Can you imagine how deeply offensive that must be to people who spend their life teaching? No one ever spoke like this man. Well, what about us? We chop liver? Yeah. It's Jesus. It's the Word incarnate. Preaching the gospel. Yeah. You're terrible compared to him. And you should be. That would, that would be deeply offensive to these people who love honor and they love to be honored by men. No one ever spoke this the way this man did. The Pharisees are furious. They charge the officers with also being deceived like the rest of the crowd. And they say, look, have any of the other authorities of the other Pharisees believed? We haven't. And if we haven't believed, then why do you? Because we would know. You know, we would know if the Christ is here. No, these people, they don't even know the law. They're accursed. The same ones that Jesus told, where I am, you cannot come, are saying that they are cursed. What irony. Then Nicodemus speaks up. He may or may not be a true believer by now. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Even a Pharisee, one of our own, is starting to buy into this nonsense? Come on, Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? He's just a hometown hero, and that's why you think that he's probably the Messiah? What is going on? Go, search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. No prophet arises from Galilee? They're so mad that they can't even think straight. They're forgetting that Elijah came from Galilee. No prophet comes from Galilee. What about Elijah? He's like the dude. He's like the guy. I don't, no, I'm just so mad. Have you ever been that mad? I bet you have. Jesus of Nazareth, uh, me too, by the way. Jesus of Nazareth had stirred up an incredible controversy at this feast. There is nothing like a consensus at this point about who he is or what to do about him. And don't we know that Jesus said it was going to be this way? Luke 12, 51, probably one of the least quoted verses that come from the mouth of Jesus. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. <laughs> Think for a moment of what has transpired here. He's told the Jews that where he is, they cannot come, and then he made a free offer of salvation to everyone. And in so doing, he has caused a great division in the crowd. Friends, does this sound like anything like the Jesus today? The, the gospel of today is what? Well, Jesus just loves you. He's, you know, he just wants to be your buddy. Jesus loves, come, come give Jesus a try and he'll give you a little tassel on the head, you know? Don't worry, you know, you got your mess ups and all that stuff. Jesus doesn't care. Just come to him and he's, he's a nice guy. But the Jesus of scripture divided people with the gospel. People are angry and furious with him. Today, this kind of Jesus would be called a Pharisee. How ironic. The Jesus of today would never divide. But not only do we see this in the life of Jesus, but also throughout the New Testament, 
1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. do you know what it tells us? There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What? There must be factions so that the genuine could be recognized? That's what the Bible says. Now, this does not mean that we should be divisive. There is a difference, a world of difference between letting the gospel and truth divide and intentionally being divisive. Intentionally being divisive is sinful. But brothers and sisters, if love and grace incarnate stirred up such controversy with his free but exclusive offer of salvation as he walked this earth, how much more now in his physical absence will there be all kinds of different reactions stirred up by the gospel? We shouldn't be surprised. The truth is that the gospel divides. It divides households, friends, denominations, and even churches. In fact, it's the gospel that is at the heart of the massive difference between Catholicism and Christianity. That's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. It was the gospel that divided then, and it was the gospel that divided during Jesus' earthly ministry, and it is the gospel today that continues to divide. Some will be convinced of the truth and believe. Some will be perplexed by the message and not know what to do with it. Some will believe but not trust. And then some will hate the message and be so furious that they'll want to kill people. Yet in the face of all of this, though men distort the gospel and hate the gospel and altogether change the gospel, yet it is the power of God unto salvation. And yet... Throughout all of human history, the good news of grace through faith in Christ Jesus moves ahead speedily such that it could be said in Acts 12 that the word of God increased and multiplied. All of the powers of hell, all of the power of Satan cannot stop the progress of the gospel. We don't lose. The gospel is going forth triumphantly even in the face of hostility, there are more Christians on the planet today than ever. It might not look like it, my friend. It might not feel like it. But God's winning. And he's going to win. And the gospel is going to keep going forth and bringing people to salvation. And oh, don't you want to be a part of that? turn our attention with the gospel on our mind, with the free offer of grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we know that it's offered freely to us because Christ purchased it with his precious blood, because his body was given for us. As these things are on our mind, we have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table this morning. 